Thank you all for inviting me to come and bring God's Word. It is a glorious thing to gather with Christ's people and worship Him on His day. So as we read the Scriptures, remember this is indeed an act of worship to God, that He is pleased when His Word goes forth and His people hear and take it to heart. I'll be reading our text tonight. Our sermon will be from uh, Matthew, uh, not Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. But for context, I'll begin at the beginning of chapter 7. So, remember, as I read and as you hear, this is God's holy word. So, Mark chapter 7. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came to him, came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. But the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they, came, when they come from the market, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers, copper vessels and couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, The man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through, the tra- through your traditions which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, and everyone, <clears throat> hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. He said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? He said, Whatever comes out of man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, Foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. 
Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the, crumb, eat from the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this saying, Go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O glorious Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given us your holy word. Father, we pray as we meditate on your word and we hear it preached, that indeed you would show us Jesus Christ by your spirit, and that we would love him. Father, we pray indeed that you would be glorified in our midst. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Excuse me real quick. We are living in an age marked with much, much weakness. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's not, many, there's not much strength left in our day. When men, in order to feel accomplished, have to compete in sports against women, or when victimhood and oppression are the means of getting prestige and honor in society and even wealth, we are not living in a time marked by strength. Indeed, even think about the many objects which you own. I have a friend back in Greenville who has been using his family's waffle iron for a hundred years. Are there any kitchen appliances that you own that you not only plan to hand down to your children, but to your grandchildren? Like, even the stuff we own is weak, and compared to other generations is not to be compared. Yet, we can also, we can very quickly look at the world and blame the world for just this utter weakness. But before we start complaining about the world, we should check ourselves. We should look to the church and see if there's weakness within us as well. Indeed, we find much weakness in the church as well. People don't have the, the backbone to stand up for doctrine. People don't have courage anymore to stand against the unbelieving world and hold the biblical truths. Our zeal for missions is often waning. There is there's much weakness also in Christ's church. So how should a Christian, in the face of so much weakness around us, how should a Christian react? We have certain people in the church who have just swung the pendulum the opposite way. And they have, one sense, become self-righteous Pharisees who look to themselves for their own strength. And by looking to themselves, they look down on others. They see the weakness of people around, both outside and inside the church. And they, have, they lack the tenderness and the compassion that Christ had for the weak. And that's because they're looking to themselves for their own strength. Christians aren't called to be evangelical jellyfish with no backbone. They're not called to be self-righteous, proud Pharisees who have a, an appearance of strength. So what is a Christian to do to find strength in a broken and weak world? A Christian is to find strength, in one sense, in a very strange way, through humble faith, through humble faith in a powerful Savior. It's not your own strength, but at the end of the day, it is strength in the power of Jesus Christ that's supposed to be manifested in your life. And we're going to see this from Mark's text today. But before we jump into our own text, let's consider what Mark is doing as a whole with his gospel. Mark has written his gospel laser focus. Mark wants you to read his gospel and understand that Jesus, that he is the Christ, not only the Christ, but the Son of God, God made flesh, and that you would have faith in his name. Mark has done this. Mark has showed the uh, messiahship of, Christ, of Jesus and his deity through many events 
through Christ's life. And he records these events proving who Jesus is. But he doesn't want you simply to gain a lot of head knowledge, to walk away with a bunch of facts for trivia night about first century Israel. He wants you to behold Jesus and respond to Christ in faith. And in our passage today, Mark's emphasis is on your response to Jesus Christ. Mark wants you to respond to your powerful Savior, to the power of Jesus, with humble faith. And we're going to unpack our text today under two simple headings. First, we're going to consider the humble faith of this woman. And then secondly, we're going to consider the glorious power of Jesus Christ. So first, the humble faith of this woman. And then secondly, the glorious power of Jesus Christ. So as we consider this first heading, the humble faith of the woman, I want you to be asking yourself, how does my faith in Jesus compare to the faith of this woman? Don't simply look at this woman and be like, that's cool, and then walk away. Compare yourself. What do you see in her, and then do you see that in yourself as well? Does the faith that mark her mark your life as well? And we'll consider her faith simply the characters of her faith, and the source of her faith. So first, what are some characters that this woman has in her faith? First, notice the obstacle that her faith must overcome. That might be a strange place to start, but the obstacle that faith overcomes actually says a lot about faith. My wife and I moved from Wisconsin down to South Carolina, bought our first home. It's a starter home. And we've had to deal with squirrels in our attic. And I've spent a lot of time going up and patching little holes to keep the squirrels out of the attic. And they keep coming back. So I went and I bought a pellet gun, and that has taken care of the squirrel population. But you up here in the mountains, I'm from Greenville, probably deal with this more often than I do, if you had a bunch of bears in your backyard, how much would you trust your pellet gun to deal with bears? I trust that they'd handle the squirrels. It's done a great job. But if I saw a mama bear and her baby bear in the backyard, I would not step outside of my pellet gun. I have no trust, no faith in that pellet gun, the deal with bears. So the greater the obstacle, the greater your faith must be. And as we look at here, this woman has a great obstacle to overcome. And that's her own sinful and defiled heart. The immediate object, the immediate reason she's coming to Jesus Christ is the demon possession of her daughter. But Mark wants us to, in one sense, take it a step further. That there's something greater that she has to deal with than just simply the ailments of her daughter and her demon possession. Notice that throughout this passage, three times, Mark uses the term demon to talk about what's happening to her daughter. But the very first time, the very first time he introduces this, he uses the phrase unclean spirit. Look at verse 25. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. Yes, this her, the immediate problem that has driven her to Christ is the demon possession of her daughter. But Mark has in one sense put this passage in the context of what we read earlier about the Pharisees and their ceremonial cleansing to realize that there's a greater issue at hand. All the ceremonial law was meant to do was not simply to separate Jews from Gentiles, but was to drive drive Israel to her need of a Savior. That the laws about not eating bacon, the laws about having not mixed clothes, was meant to point you to the fact that your heart was defiled, that your heart was dirty, and you had an unclean spirit, and that more than you needed was washing the outside of the cup, was that you needed the inside of the cup 
washed. And we see this even further in the text of her background. Consider where Mark says this woman is from. He says that this woman was a Greek in verse 26, a Syrophoenician by birth. Mark rarely gives genealogical information about other characters in his gospel, but he thought it important in this situation, in this text, to tell us something about the background of this woman. And to any Jew that would be reading this, the thing that would be flashing in his mind would be unclean, unclean. This is a Gentile, a Gentile by birth. She was born into uncleanness. And Mark has, again, given us the, the key to understanding what this uncleanness is. And the uncleanness of this woman is more than just simply the fact that she was born into a non-Jewish household. The uncleanness of, her, of this woman is her unclean heart. Her faith must not simply overcome the fact that she, she needs help for her daughter. Her faith must overcome the fact that she needs a Savior to give her a new heart, to take out her heart of stone and give her a heart of flesh. So I'd ask you tonight, this morning, what have you come to Jesus for? What are you trusting in Jesus to save you from? Yes, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone will admit that. That's, you know, there's a, the phrase, to be human is to err. Are you simply trusting Jesus to deal with your occasional slip of the tongue, the occasional showing up late to work? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ to take care of your undefiled, your defiled and unclean heart? Is that why you've come to Christ? Have you seen that you have a, a wicked heart apart from the saving work of Christ? That your heart is, there's nothing good within you apart from the saving work of Christ. And that is why you have come to Jesus Christ. Are you trusting Christ to deal with your pesky squirrel problems of your bad behavior, bad habits? Or are you trusting Jesus to take care of the sin in your life that would maul you to death like a bear? And the, re- the reason that you come to Christ will say a whole lot about the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. So we've noticed that the reason this woman has come is because she needs a new heart. But now let's look at the manner in which she exercises this faith in Jesus Christ. She's exercising her faith with much, much humility. Notice that the little things that Mark's recording for us to show how humble she is. In verse uh, 26, she comes and she falls at the feet of Jesus. What would it take you to fall at the feet of your boss? If your boss said, I'd give you a raise if you fall down every day at my feet and tell me how great I am, would you do that to your boss? You're like, no, you, are, you have such a great ego. I'm not going to fall at your feet and tell you how great you are every day. This woman, she comes down and she falls at the feet of Jesus. She humbles herself. Not only does she fall down at his feet, but she's begging him. Notice that she kept asking him to cast a demon out over and over and over again. She's begging him for help. It's a, it's a very humbling thing that, in one sense, admit that you need help and ask someone for help, but then to do it over and over again is even more humbling. This woman has such a humble attitude that she's come to Christ with. But she even shows her humility even in greater ways by accepting the designation of a dog. Many commentators, many people within the evangelical church have no idea what to do with verse 27. They read it, 
and their preconceived understanding of who Jesus is, a Jesus of all love and no law, doesn't fit this picture of Christ in verse 27. And so they, they, they grasping at straws to make sense of this passage. Let's read it again. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And many people in the evangelical world cling to that word little, and they say, aha, this isn't an insult. Jesus is actually saying she's part of the family. If you didn't have the word little, you know, stray dogs, those are, those are gross and dirty and dangerous. But Jesus actually called her a little dog, and she's a part of the family. She's, you know, like we've got our pets, and she's just part of the home. And all she needs to do is wait her turn, let the kids eat first, and as a pet, she'll get some food. But think with me for a minute. Imagine I invited you over to my house, and I invited you over for a meal, and you, as a good guest, asked where you should sit for the meal. And I said, oh, I put your plate on the floor next to Fifi's bowl. Don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel insulted. Fifi's like one of us. We've taken thousands of selfies with Fifi. She's groomed every, she's twice a week. Every family vacation, we take Fifi with us. Like, Fifi's part of the family, and we thought it would be a great honor that you could eat with her so that she would feel a little better. Like, would you, would you go on all fours and eat next to my dog? Now, you laugh because you can't think of anyone so rude. You can't think of anyone so rude that would actually ask you to eat on the floor with your pet dog. Now, if a 21st century American is going to be offended by eating on the floor with a dog, how much more offended would a Middle Eastern 1st century woman be offended by be calling a little dog being asked to stoop down and eat on the floor like a dog. Now, this, this is, you can't get around the fact that calling anyone a dog, regardless if it's big or little, is insulting. Unless, unless what Christ is saying to her is true, that she is a sinner, and that every time she has sinned and offended a holy God, she's actually offended the very person standing before her. That really, before Jesus Christ, she's a dead dog. That her sins have so defiled her, so alienated her from God, that she is, to be called a dog is actually in one sense a compliment because no dog has sinned against their creator, but she has. She has sinned against her maker who is now standing before her and she is asking him for help. Christ is the Holy One of Israel He's one of pure eyes in the look on evil. And he is God Almighty in the flesh. And to stand before him in your sin is to be nothing but a dog. But notice how she responds to the, the conviction that Christ brings about her sin. She doesn't turn and run away. She doesn't get angry. Look at the first two words the first two words of her response in twenty eight. Yes. Lord. Yes, Lord. Christ has come. Christ has revealed her sin, has exposed who she is apart from Jesus Christ. And her response is, Yes, Lord. If Christ were to come and expose your own sin, how would you respond to Him? If Christ opened up your heart and showed you what dwelt within you, by nature a child of wrath, and showed you what was in your heart, how would you respond to Jesus Christ? 
Would you get angry and indignant and storm off? Would you get bitter and quietly slink away? Would you just find it awkward and get silent? Or would you, like this woman, say, yes, Lord, and submit yourself to the the conviction that Christ brings? Now, Christ isn't going to appear to you and speak these words to you. But Christ does still speak today. He speaks through his word and he speaks to those that he has ordained to office. So when people come into this pulpit and they bring conviction of sin, how do you react to Christ convicting you to sin from the pulpit? When the session comes to you and has concern about your Christian walk, how do you respond to them? When a brother and sister in Christ shows you a place in your life that you are not conforming to the word of God and calls you to repentance, how do you respond to them? Children, when your mom and your dad are speaking to you and bringing correction to your life, how do you respond to your parents? Do you, you think you're really wise and you see all the faults in your parents? Guess what? God sees the faults in your parents. God knows when your parents fall short. And he doesn't need you to prove it to them that they're sinners. What God would find much more beautiful in his sight, children, is if you can say, yes, mom, yes, dad, and that you would humbly submit to the correction that they brought in your life. Because God has ordained them to guide and rule over you for a short period of time for your good. And far more precious in his sight is your willingness to submit to them than show them up. So what we've seen in our text is how humble this woman is willing to exercise her faith in Christ. But we also see the strength that she exercises her faith with. Look what, look who's not with her when she comes to Jesus. Her daughter. She has left her alien daughter behind and has come to Christ. How many of you parents here would leave, leave the bedside of one of your children who is sick and go and get help? How, I, you know, as it was announced, like I just had my first child. He's three months old. And leaving him, this is the first time I've ever left him for a night. And it was really tough leaving him behind to come here. But he's perfectly healthy right now. Imagine if my, I can't imagine if my son was sick right now, how tough it would be to leave him behind and come here. This woman has left her daughter behind because she believes that Jesus can actually do something. She believes that there is power in Jesus Christ. And so she has left her daughter and has come to Jesus seeking help. We also see her strength in, excuse me, in the way that she argues with Christ. You notice that like, Christ has come with a word of conviction, has brought her low, but then she continues to put forth an argument with Jesus. And look how she argues with Christ here. Again in verse 28. And she, and she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. She's arguing with the incarnate God about why she should receive mercy. And notice how she argues with him. She doesn't try to play reverse psychology and be like, 
I am so miserable, I am so evil, I am so wicked, therefore you should love me. No, the way she argues with Christ is by saying, you are glorious, you are beautiful, you are majestic, your grace is sufficient. No, she just needs crumbs. She's a little dog, and all she wants from Jesus is crumbs. She doesn't care that the Israelites get whole loaves of bread on the table. This woman wants just crumbs of grace from the Savior. When I was a kid, my parents had a little coin jar for me, and I'd get nickels and dimes whenever I brushed my teeth to encourage me to brush my teeth, and the little jar would get full, and I'd have about $10, and then they'd take me to the toy store, and I'd get to buy something. But imagine instead of putting nickels and dimes in that jar, my parents put diamonds in that jar. I'd brush my teeth for one week, and I have more money than any little boy could ever imagine having at the toy store. Now, why is this? Because diamonds are way more precious, way more valuable than just nickels and dimes. About the same size, but because of what a diamond is, it has so much more value than a nickel and dime. And this woman sees that because of who Jesus is and how amazing his grace is, just the smallest drop of his blood is all she needs, all she could ever want to take care of any of her problems. Is this how you wrestle with God? Are you simply pleading just your own miseries before him? Or when you come in prayer with God, do you argue with him? But when you, and when you argue with him, are you arguing on the basis of his glory, on the basis of his sufficiency, on the basis of his merit and worth? Do you have a strong enough faith that can go beyond yourself, a faith that's strong enough to see how wonderful and beautiful your Savior is? Notice lastly the strength of her faith in her obedience. Jesus says to her in verse 29, uh, For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And then the woman just goes. She doesn't say, Jesus, I need some proof that the word you said is true. Before I obey your command to go home, can you come with me? Can you give me a promise that you'll stay here so if I go home and I find my daughter still sick, I can come back here and talk to you again? No. Jesus gives a command. And she believes that the thing that he has promised has actually happened. And she obeys. She doesn't need to live by sight. Her faith is strong enough that she can indeed live by faith. Is this what marks your own faith? When Christ here says that he will provide for you, that he, as much as he cares for the sparrow and feeds the sparrow, that he will care for and provide for you. Is your faith strong enough to cling to that promise that when he then commands you to give to the church, to give to those who are in need, do you argue with Christ saying, I won't give until I see that you will indeed care for me? Or do you look at the promises of God and see that, yes, Lord, you will care for me. You are glorious. You are all-sufficient. And because you're all-sufficient, I will obey and I will go forth. Because your word is true, and I trust you. Does that mark your faith as well? As we've considered this woman, it can be really discouraging as we compare her with our own lives. If we're honest with ourselves, most days our faith doesn't look like the faith of this woman. There's much doubt, there's much weakness, much pride in the way that we live our lives. 
And the faith that we have is not like the faith of this woman. But we should then ask the question, where did this woman get such faith? If I want to have faith like her, I need to know where this woman got her faith from. Now, Mark isn't trying to write his gospel to moralize and simply say, here's an example, now go do yourself. Mark understands that you can't do this by yourself, that you need help in order to have faith like this woman. Now, he doesn't say explicitly in this reason where this woman got her faith, but through the rest of his gospel, he makes it picture clear, crystal clear, where this woman got her faith. And it's from no one else but the work of the Holy Spirit in her life producing faith like this. In Mark's own words, this woman has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. I don't mean some second conversion experience, but I mean by baptized by the Holy Spirit. She's been born again. She's been raised with Christ. The heart of stone has been taken out and the heart of flesh has been put in. She is a new creature. And Mark makes it clear that this is the work of the Spirit. It's interesting that Mark introduces Christ in the Gospels as the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John comes preaching in the wilderness. The, the end of the age is at hand. And Mark says that one better than himself is coming. And what does he say about Jesus and how he will be better than John? He says, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The, the distinguishing mark that sets Jesus apart from John is his ability to baptize with the Holy Spirit. As there's many things indeed that put Christ in a whole new category than Mark. But the thing that Mark draws out is Christ's ability to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Again, going to the, the context, it's, there, there's, there's a reason why this passage follows right after the passage of the Pharisees. What we see in chapter 7 is a bunch of Pharisees who are trying to externally clean themselves with man-made traditions with the result that nothing changes. As we read earlier, these Pharisees are cleansing couches, copper vessels, washing them, washing themselves. Interestingly, the word that here is occurring for washing is the Greek word for, is the Greek word baptizo, where we get our word baptize from. The, the Pharisees are baptizing all these external things that they've made up in order to be ceremonially unclean and what does Christ tell him? You do all this and it's for nothing. You've cleansed the outside of the cup, but the inside is still filthy and dirty. Your ability to baptize yourself can do nothing. What you need is me to come into your life and baptize your heart and give you a heart of flesh if you actually want to have a changed heart. And that's what we see in this woman. She has a changed heart. And the only source of this changed heart is through the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. Have you tasted the Spirit's work in your life? Have you tasted the powers of heaven? Have you tasted a new life that you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are now a slave to righteousness? Before you had no idea of your own sinfulness. Now you see your sinfulness. Before you had no idea who Jesus was. Now you know who Jesus is. 
Not only do you know him, but he's your greatest treasure in all the earth. Has the Spirit given you a new heart? And if not, what keeps you? What keeps you to coming to Christ, seeking the work of his Spirit in your heart? Are you so proud that you think that everything that you have in this world is far better than what Christ could offer you? Do you still trust in your own strength to cleanse yourself, to wash yourself, even though time and time again you've tried it and you've failed? When? When will you humble yourself like this woman and come to Christ that He, through the mighty working of His Spirit, would give you that new heart that you might be a new creature and believe on Him alone for your salvation? So what we've seen so far from this woman is that we are to have a humble faith in Jesus Christ. We are humbly to seek after Him. So are you exercising humble faith in your life? Are you humbly seeking after Christ day by day as a Christian? Day by day, humbling yourself, confessing your sins, and looking to Jesus Christ to save you? If not, what, what is keeping you? from being humble in your life? What is keeping you from humbly seeking Christ? The path of humility is very difficult. When you became a Christian for the first time, you might have thought things were going to get easier. You might have thought, I found the answer to all my problems. Yes, you did. Jesus is the answer to every single problem in your life. But it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You might have been like, I was a sinner. And I came to Christ, and now I feel even more conviction for my sin. Well, before, and when you were outside of Christ, you didn't have any idea of just how sinful you were. But when you come to Jesus, now you've put death sin, but his holy presence continues to reveal sin in your life. As you get older and older, you'll see more and more places in your heart that you need Christ to sanctify and to cleanse. That's the path of humility. The way up to heaven, the way up to heaven, is the way down in humility. You might see new trials in your life. And you thought that becoming a Christian, you wouldn't have these trials. But Christ often sends trials, difficult trials in our life, that we wouldn't trust in ourselves. When a hurricane comes through, you don't trust that you'll be able to stand in your own strength before it. No, you run for help. And that should be a picture, when those trials come in our lives, of running to Christ. And we cannot, in our own strength, Make it. But we need to humbly trust in Him. So we've considered who this woman is. We've considered that we don't have the strength. We don't have it in ourselves to have faith like this woman. But there's one who is mighty. There is one who is powerful. And He is able to save. As we began the sermon, we were thinking about the weakness of our culture. And so far we've just talked about Humility and humbling ourselves. There is, no, there is no humility in the world around us. So we should be marked with humility, but we also need strength. And that strength is going to come from our powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's very interesting that people think you just need faith. That if you just believe, everything will go well. Everything will go right with you. You can just imagine like a motivational picture, poster, well, a nice serene background with the words underneath, believe. You're like, believe in what? What, what can faith by itself do? And we know, in fact, that 
Faith by itself can't do anything. It needs an object. Everyone believes in something, but everyone, everyone will die. Your faith in some random object besides Jesus Christ cannot save you from your sins. It cannot save you from death. Only faith in Jesus Christ has power to save. And why does faith in Jesus Christ have power to save? Because he is no one else than God in the flesh. Mark again here is driving home the fact that Jesus is no mere man, but that Jesus is the Son of God. And he does so in two ways. First, he does it by demonstrating Christ's power over the demons. Look again at uh, verse 29. For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Who, who in the world has power over the demons? Who, who actually has authority to command demons to leave and they actually leave? You don't have that power. The, the, the scripture says that in your fallen state, you are actually a slave to Satan. That before you came to Christ, in your fallen, miserable state, you did the bidding of Satan, and Satan did not do the, your bidding. And if you're doing the bidding of Satan, you don't have any power to control him. Even Adam and Eve in the garden, and their unfallen state, didn't have authority over the demons. They had authority over all the creatures on the earth, but they were not given authority over the heavenly realms. We also know from Mark's Gospel that the demons themselves are not commanding each other. If the Satan cast out Satan, what does Jesus say? His kingdom won't stand. So if Jesus here is casting out Satan, casting out demons, he can't just simply be a mere man because man doesn't have that power. He cannot be some demonic force because demons do not have power. Demons cannot cast each other out without destruction to their own kingdom. There's only one option left. He must be God. The only person who has the power to cast out Satan is God himself. This is what God tells Job in the very ending of Job's, uh, in the book of Job. Who has commanded the Leviathan? God has. God, Satan had to come to God for permission to test Job. And God gave that permission. But still, Satan could not do anything without God's permission first. The only one who has authority over the demons is God. So if Jesus here is commanding demons, we see that he is no mere man, but that he is indeed divine. We also see Christ's divinity and his ability to heal this woman's daughter from afar. Think about like, in most cases, when Jesus heals someone, he's there, he's present, he lays hands on them. They, he knows exactly who that person is who needs healing. Jesus has never met this, girl, this woman's daughter. And yet, he says the demon's gone out. He didn't have to go lay hands on this woman's daughter. And yet, she's still healed. This means that Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. For this woman to come and lay her, her cares before Christ... And him to be able to answer authoritatively means that he'd have to know all the details that she didn't bring. She didn't have some GPS location of like, in this home right here, heal this daughter. No. Christ knew who the daughter was and was able from a distance 
to command her healing, and she was healed. That should be a great encouragement to all of us here. That we might think, only if Jesus came in person, and would come and touch me and heal me, then I would be made better. Christ right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That is a great distance from us. But distance was no issue here. If Christ could care for this woman's daughter at a distance here on earth, how much more can Christ care for your issues and concerns in his exalted state with all authority in heaven and earth being given to him? Now, he's not physically present, but the heart that he had in this little passage for this woman's daughter is the same heart that he has in heaven towards his saints here on earth. And he still hears, he still answers prayers. So this should be thinking about Christ's divinity and his power to heal out afar should encourage us here right now. So we see the strength of Christ. Is Christ working in your own life? Is Christ overcoming sin in your own life? The world is marked by weakness. and We're not to be marked by pride and self-righteousness self-righteousness and our own strength. What we are to be marked as as Christians is Christ powerfully working in us. What does Paul say to the Galatians? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. Christians, in one sense, should be some of the strongest people in all the world. But it's not because of who we are and above ourselves. It's because of the Savior who is powerful in us. Think of Daniel's friends when they were faced with the options of worshiping idols or being burned in the fiery furnace. We know we can look back and we're like, wow, those were strong men to stand up against such opposition. The things that we're facing today in this world are nothing like what Daniel's friends had to face. No one is threatening to heat an oven up super hot and throw you in it and burn you alive. They're threatening to cancel you on Facebook. It's sad, but it's nowhere near as being thrown into a fire alive. And Daniel's friends, with strength, could stand before Nebuchadnezzar and say, we will not worship you and your gods, and we will only worship our God. Because he is powerful enough to save us. And even if he doesn't save us, we will not worship you. The the world has no... if, If you have the courage that Daniel's friends did, the world will have no idea what to do with you. They're so flimsy and they fall over so quickly. But where is Daniel's friends' strength coming from? They're not getting all pompous and asking all like tough guys with Nebuchadnezzar. No. They're very humble. Even if he doesn't save us, we will still not serve you. They don't trust themselves, but they trust a powerful God to deliver them from their situation. That's how a Christian should be marked with strength. A humble faith trusting in a powerful God. And what are some practical ways that we can see our faith strengthened? And our humility, in one sense, increased as well. We can see our strength increased as we meditate more and more 
on the person and work of Jesus Christ. How often do you spend time just to think about the fact that, that God came in the flesh, that the all-sufficient one, the self-sufficient one, the one who is all-powerful, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, the God who made the universe took on flesh and dwelt among us. And when you realize that God himself would die on a cross for sinners such as you, sinners such as me, we should have so much courage in this day. But if we aren't thinking about who Jesus is, if the thoughts of who Christ is and what he's done are not constantly filling our minds, if we aren't coming to the scriptures to to see a better picture of who Jesus is, we will not have strength. We, if we have strength, it will be a prideful strength in our own abilities. The only way to have a Christian strength is to constantly be meditating on your Savior. So pick up good books that talk about Christ and are constantly reminding you of who he is. Talk to one another about your Savior and all the ways that he has helped you and has redeemed you has saved you. Constantly be stirring one another up to the things of heaven, not simply the things on earth. And as we do that, we will see our faith strengthened. We will also be humbled. When, when Peter realized that the person he was talking to was no mere man in the, par- in the situation where uh, Christ told him to cast the nets on the other side and they had that giant haul of fish, Peter's response is, to fall down before Jesus and say, depart from me, for I'm a sinner. He realized that a holy man, God himself, was before him. And Peter realized that he was a sinner. The more and more you realize and think about your God, think about Christ, it will reveal more sin in your heart. That will be more of a reason to humbly Trust Christ, not to turn away from him, not to go to any other source for cleansing, but all the more reason to continually trust in Jesus Christ. So we are living in weak times. What are we to do? What is the church to do when the world is marked by weakness? We're not meant to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just tough it up, grit our teeth. No, we are We're called to, like this woman, have humble faith in the power of Jesus Christ. When Augustine was asked what the three most important virtues of the Christian life were, his answer was humility, humility, humility. The three things that are the three strengths of every Christian are to be humility. Humility, humility. Is this in your life? Do you see a humble faith in Jesus Christ? If not, I pray and ask that you would humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in the right time. Let us pray. O glorious Father, you dwell in unapproachable light. In Heaven you dwell, and every moment of the day the angels proclaim your glory. 
They sing praises to you, for you are wonderful, almighty and all-powerful. Father, we thank you, though, that in your might, you, you, hum, you gave us your Son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, that did not consider himself first, but considered us, that he might die in our place, that we would be redeemed and cleansed from your blood. And we thank you for the mighty working of your Spirit, who now unites us powerfully to the Savior, that indeed we might live lives that glorify you in all things. Father, we pray that you would apply your word to our hearts, that we would be more and more like Christ, for he is the one whom we love most of all. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.